Welcome to the School of Unlearning. I'm your host, Elisa Haggerty. I've always believed in the power of questions. They create a gap, a space where we pause and begin to challenge the world around us. Without questions, we're stuck in the trance of life, a life given to us versus one created with agency. Your journey to rethink and unlearn the norms no longer serving you begins now. Hey you, welcome back to the School of Unlearning podcast. Today, our guest is Jordan Dan. Jordan's work as a therapist is strongly informed by her clinical training in gestalt therapy, imago relationship therapy, and somatic experiencing. Jordan's approach to working with clients is strength-based, trauma-informed approach to support self-healing of the individual. Jordan has a BFA in acting and an MFA in theater education from Boston University and is a graduate of Gestalt Associates for Psychotherapy. Jordan's a national certified and New York State licensed psychoanalyst in private practice in New York City. She works with individuals, couples, and conducts case supervision in the city as well. Jordan's an avid content creator, and I highly encourage you to go check out her page on Instagram. I'll put it in the show notes for you. And there you'll find incredible videos and stories that are buzzworthy. She's also been featured in Mind Body Green, Newsbreak, and Psychotherapy Networker. This episode is a deeply personal one, and one where Jordan leads by sharing how her childhood experiences have shaped the way that she sees relationships, self-care, and her work as a therapist. This is one of those feel-good, want-to-hug-her-through-the-screen-and-share-with-everyone-I-know type episodes. So sit back, my friends, and enjoy the conversation. Hi, Jordan. Welcome to the School of Unlearning podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Yay. Um... I, first of all, just want to give a shout out to the work you do, the content that you produce um, in the world of um, human experience and human development and having a voice like yours that is clear and compassionate and also gives a tremendous amount of nuance is very, very important. Um, you know, I, I want you to tell the audience a little bit about what you do, but I was first drawn to your work. I found you through Instagram um, and I remember I was taking a run around Prospect Park, feeling a little bit lonely, like where are all my friends, where are all the people? And I was kind of running and I was like, we need to embrace dependency, like forget codependency, like maybe there's a way we can exist healthily together. And then I opened up my screen, it's almost like the universe was listening to me. And I saw your post about codependency. And I was like, oh, hello, Jordan, I shall follow you. And I shall have you on my podcast. And maybe we could be friends one day. Um, so anyway, that's how I came across your work. So again, thank you for producing the nuanced and helpful work that you do for the world. Hmm. Thank you so much. And um, yeah, we, we're already moving into relationship and friendship mm -hmm. just through your initiation and impulse to reach out. I um, think that's, we can forget that we have access to people. Mm -hmm. And I, um, well, maybe we'll get more into that in, in just sharing about my own story, but um, it feels so good. It feels so good to remember we have access and it feels so good to be reached. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I was so touched by you reaching out and letting me know um, how what I put out in the world, how it touched you. Mm. I appreciate that thought too. It's like, we're really one message away from connection sometimes in this world. And uh, that it's reciprocal, that it's the person reaching out and it's the person who receives it, that both, both have that opportunity to connect. So um, 
so we, we're going to have a lot to talk about today. Um, I was scanning your profile again and your website again um, earlier today, last night, and I was like, there's so many questions. Uh, I'd love to get into breaking relationship patterns later on in the talk and um, a, a lot of questions I have. But on the School of Unlearning podcast, what I do is um, for the audience and for you and for me is I always sort of begin by unpacking unlearnings by beginning with childhood. And that's where we get our roadmaps. That's where we understand um, what the world is. And as you know, it's the work you do. Um, I just want to know more about you and your journey and, and where you come from and some of the roadmaps that you were given by influential people growing up. Hmm. Yeah, so when you sent me the questions ahead of time, I, I just noticed in my own body as I started reading the sent the questions that I had, I, like when I was feeling into my childhood, there was kind of like this, oh, yeah, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, feel, I feel more excited about the kind of more present strength-based questions that are kind of at the end of the list. Um, yeah. But so that was just that I was appreciating noticing that, noticing even as I started to feel into the map of our conversation, um, what was coming up for me. Um, and so let me see how to talk about my childhood. Um, my, my parents, uh, my mother was a nun for 15 years um, mm. and my father, and then when she left the convent of her own volition because of uh, basically her, I think, introspection, like gradual introspection about w why she had made this choice of living a devotional life, um, what started to kind of awaken in her was more of a sense of like, oh, I'm here out of fear about living more than choicefulness about this being that I want. Mm -hmm. And um, also, of course, with respect to her own unlearning, growing up in a you know very Catholic observant household um, and it being of a time where there were less options for what women mm -hmm. did, could do with their lives. Um, and my father, so when my mom left the convent, she went back to teach at Ramsey High School um, in Ramsey, New Jersey. And my mm -hmm. father was actually a student at, there. So they're 17 years apart. And the kind of the narrative I think I've always held about that is that um, developmentally, they were kind of at the same place because mm -hmm. my mother had been kind of uh yeah. encapsulated in her own <laughs> right. uh space and my father was young and so they they met and they started this this love affair and um you know part of this story my my the inception story was that they my mom my father was working on a uh indian reservation in um Missoula, Montana, and my mom came to visit him, and they had simultaneous orgasms under the Rocky Mountains, and I was conceived. Wow. <laughs> there you go, Jordan. <laughs> wow. um, and so, you know, my father left, uh, he was at Dartmouth College, he left Dartmouth, they moved to Santa Cruz, and my 
for him to continue college and they lived in married housing and really my whole young my life as a child was a lot of moving by the time i got to college i had moved 11 times i think mm -hmm. um there's a there's a quote that i love by this writer um Shul, shulmuth firestone which is childhood is a supervised nightmare and um you know i don't think that's true for everyone but to a certain mm -hmm. degree that's that's what being a child is you're along for the adults ride yeah and um and i think you know i i have again there's a duality here where i have i really have admiration that my parents brought me into the world and included me as they continued to reach for what they wanted and do what they pleased and on the other hand i can see how that was really hard for me to mm -hmm. not have kind of stability rootedness not mm -hmm. have a continuity of experience and mm -hmm. again you know there's like um an, a, another quote that i kind of hold in tandem with that one i just offered is um as eckhart tolle says um life will give you whatever experience is most useful for your evolution mm -hmm. um you know i i've of course mm -hmm. as a therapist yeah as a therapist i feel like that's the process of of therapy is we make meaning out of these experiences we've had that have been so painful mm -hmm. um and so again you know it's like on the one hand moving around like we did was um really created such resilience in me and mm -hmm. allowed me to um make relationships quickly and to be adaptive and on the other hand there's even residue to this day of this like restlessness and hunger i have that mm -hmm. again you know it's always two sides i love mm -hmm. that part of me and also um i'm very lucky to have a partner who is so so complimentary and that he's very rooted and very consistent mm -hmm. um, so so yeah that's 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 a, that those are the kind of beginnings hmm what a beginning you've had and you had um i'm curious for for you what were some of like the, the worldviews you had as you were navigating spaces new terrains um and situations with with your both your parents were with you growing up right they they were together. So you had that, those two figures in your life who were physically present, but there was this moving energy around you and unpredictable um, cadence. I'm wondering how that shaped your worldview in terms of relationships and, and safety. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I guess, you know, when I was 12 years old, my parents did, they had their first separation. And then they divorced when I was in my twenties. So, mm -hmm. um, I, I think, you know, one of your questions was about who, 
who are the most influential people in your childhood, I think. Mm -hmm. And I struggled with this question because I really couldn't find someone. I couldn't find a human object, but I did find an object, which was my relationship to theater. Mm. And I will, I'll never forget. I went to I went to a theater camp for from the age of nine until I was sixteen in mm-hmm. in Vermont, and at eight years old, my mom took me to visit the camp, and we w- walked into the theater, and just the smell, the the it's a proscenium, um, beautiful theater, and. S- sitting in the in the audience watching a rehearsal and seeing this the stage and these cherry blossoms as part of the set and the Mm. the stage just showered in this pink light and it was actually the first time that i ever heard um pachelbel canon as well so i have this like amazing association with this first time of being in you know uh, what became my church for, for the very early and long period of my life. Um, and, and just this incredible, like some, you know, visceral sensory experience of beauty. And I'm moved even talking about it right now of like really, really deep belonging. Yeah. 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 So what shaped my early life, finding theater was like moving from such a long period of really feeling lonely, Mm -hmm. feeling like I'm, I'm alone. I'm alone on this ride of these two adults Hmm. and find, and finding theater was home, was connection. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, after I knew that this was a place where connection could happen, then all of the deep connections I had in the early parts of my life came from my relationship to theater. Wow. What a beautiful story. I'm so happy you found theater and theater found you. Um, It's definitely, it feels like a homecoming listening to you and and seeing you um, and just you know, you're, you're incredibly emotive anyway, but you became to a sort of a different level of emotion and expression, which speaks to that dynamic. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a safe space for you. Um, absolutely. And it was a place where I started to feel a, a strongest sense of self. Yeah. A sense of self that I like a place where I felt, me a place where i felt seen and reflected and i discovered these part things that i didn't really know were gifts or talents that had a place and had had a had a place and had a system had a system of of repetition where i could count on that right yeah that's stability when i think of theater i think of when I think of the word play comes to mind, um, 
play mm. within characters and personas and actual movement and actual things that we don't often get to do. You think about school and growing up in traditional academia here in America, and it's a lot of sitting and staring and <laughs> memorization and stoic thinking, which is just really stifles most people. <laughs> I was one of them. I was like, uh, this is terrible. I need to go play sports because I'm going to cry. <laughs> so I found that sense of home and belonging and skills mm. I didn't know I had through sports, which saved me by all intents and purposes. Um, so did you think about theater then as a form of play or now, as you think about it, you engage in it, do you, what do you kind of do with the word play in theater? Definitely. I mean, absolutely. Play, you know, Esther Perel writes and speaks beautifully about the relationship between play and safety and play and connection. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think you one has to feel safe to be able to play and play is essential in terms of our growth and development and, and connection, intimacy. Mm -hmm. Like there's so much intimacy that happens in play because I'm, we're, we're free. We're free to exist and feel ourselves out of the, you know, maybe rigidity and norms of what is usually expected. Mm. Yeah. And I just, I, as you were talking about sports, I think, you know, watching some of your footage, watching you do some diving and, and gymnastics, right? Uh, basketball more is the, is the method for me. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I thought I saw some some footage of you like in move in very active movement someplace. It, it could be. I mean, like yes, probably. Sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a creature of movement. So I, I just yeah. I just had very a very strong sense of your own relationship to your body when I was looking at these images, um, and I'm 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 curious about. I'm curious about that for you and also how that, how your relationship to sports or kind of how that was a part of you, how your somatic experience was part of that feeling for you of belonging. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great topic too. I think I'm happy that we're both talking about it because I know everyone listening and the people who I talk to feel most alive and most um, that they belong when they're in a sense of play could be through theater, through music, through sports. Um, and I, it hit me as we were talking about this, like so much of our early childhood is imagination and personas and role playing and playing. And we are completely, we don't care about like our inhibitions are gone and we're just, we're in another world. And then there's these years as you know, where we become robotic and we start to, you know, live lives of whatever people are telling us to do. We become stoic, we repress. But for me at a young age, it was like, you know, I wasn't very good at school. There was a lot of, I had a hard time understanding the way that it was taught. It wasn't, they didn't do themselves any favors, but I also had a hard time with attention span. And when I was learning how to move and play basketball and run and climb trees with my older brothers in New Jersey, I had a sense of belonging. I actually always wanted to be one of the boys. I was like, oh, like, cool. Like I'm one of the guys, you know, like that to me was a good thing. I wanted that. Um, 
I'm very mm-hmm. rooted in my femininity and who I am and confident in that now. But as a young girl, I wanted only to be like the boys. And so sports gave me that that platform and I became really good at them. And I got a lot of affirmation and a lot of reward, like college scholarships and playing in, at the next level. So for me, it was a place to exist and place to belong. And And over the years, it's been interesting, probably from like age 22 to I'm 37 now, my love with movement has shifted and changed. It's now a lot more pure than it was then, which is weird to say, because when you're 11 and 12 and you're just playing for hours, you know, it's as pure as it could seem, but I was actually doing it for approval. And now when Mm. I play, I'm playing with like, I have like 20 women who we're all in the LGBTQ space. We play every Saturday morning for two hours outside in Park Slope. And it's a, it's a belonging activity, but it's also, we talk about it a lot, my friends and I, it's expression. We get for two hours a week, we get to come and show up and yell and, and compete and hit each other and fall and dive and do things that we're not doing in our very robotic, weird worlds here. And so we actually now come to love it in a different way. So it feels more pure to me. And it's I, it's a very different experience in my body now than it was when I was nine and 10, where nine and 10 in high school and college pain was go forward. And now when I experience pain, I stop and I listen and I nurture. <laughs> so I have a very different somatic experience with my body. Thank goodness. Uh, at 37. So. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the playfulness i mean well maybe i'll just kind of offer a little bridge here mm-hmm. so for my love my love of theater my feeling of belonging there really took me it's i studied i did a bfa in acting mm-hmm. at boston university um and actually at the end of uh when i graduated all my all my friends were moving to new york or LA to, you know, try to be, try to be actors, either film or theater. And at the end of my time in college, I had made friends with a lot of musicians. I grew up singing. Musical theater was kind of my first love. And um, I had started playing with some musicians and I decided, okay, I actually went to theater school to be a rock star. And I fronted a band for several years. We toured the country together. And um, that was such an incredible creative expression. The freedom I had there to tell the stories I wanted, um, to express myself in the ways that I wanted, create the costumes or choreography that I did with, with other um, dancers, uh, all of that felt so much less restrictive than being in a, a play. Although I love, I love theater, and I part of what I love is transforming in it and kind of, you know, entering into a story. But there was something very. Uh, I had my own agency in, 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 in being in a, in a band, and I really. Love that. And, you know, over time, many people discover that it's very hard to have a quality of life and also try to be uh, 
an artist with a single discipline. And so eventually I decided I would see, I started to, I fell in love with yoga and I started to, I became, yoga was another, talk about another place of belonging and home. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also this like unbelievable, I mean, my, my practice, no, I don't practice as much anymore, but my practice was uh, as a, um, in vinyasa and um, as Ashtanga was my primary kind of love. And man, what an incredible thing to have this structured series where one can find, can show up and find mesmerizing freedom. Mm-hmm. and worlds in each pose on any given day there that you know st- structure and freedom are two existential kind of polarities and right. i think that all for me all of my most aliveness has come from places where there is both real deep kind of methodical structure that offers opportunity for kind of ecstatic freedom. Hmm. Um, Hmm. And as I started to teach yoga, I fell in love with teaching, fell in love with teaching. Uh, Again, that's another home and place of belonging as as an educator. And, um, And then I returned to grad school and did an MFA in theater education thinking, oh, I can have a quality of life and get paid regularly and well and do and stay in this place that I love, which is to help other actors um, do this work. Hmm. And I, while I loved my uh, graduate training, I realized upon leaving that I had an illusion that it was easier to break into higher education with a very specific skill set and that actually became just as challenging right hmm. um i'm very curious to keep going from that point but i have a couple questions about some of the ground we've covered um Great. you know i'm just curious when you first started to get into theater and then the arts and even music um were your parents supportive of that mm, that's a great question Yes. I remember this moment must have, I must have been like 10 or 11. It was at a Thanksgiving with my mother's family who are all my mother's. So my mom's father, my grandfather's um, Lebanese and my grandmother is, is Irish and they are both um, first generation. Mm-hmm. And uh, so quite traditional, um, in in some ways. And I remember being at this Thanksgiving with all of my mom's family and some, someone made, one of her siblings made some, I think slightly judgmental comment about my love of theater. Mm -hmm. And my mother looked across the table and said, my daughter can be a truck driver if it makes her happy. Yes. Um, 
And I remember like feeling so protected and supported in that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my, 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 my parents have always been, gave me permission to pursue what I was interested in. And my mother in particular has been extraordinarily and very much practically supportive. She has helped me move towards opportunities that um, that that she saw that I had some interest in. And I'm so mm. grateful for that. I love that. Go mom. I love that she said that um, in your presence too. Um, I'm curious when you think about the landscape of your life, the moving, the finding the theater, the becoming more of who you are in the form of expression. I'm curious um, because that is a contrast to the first, it seems like the first handful of years where you were um, moving around and not feeling the safety uh, and the sense of belonging. I'm just curious, what are some of the learnings that you take from that time that still like decade after decade remain true for you? Like with a capital T, like, um, you know, growing up for me, a, a learning that still remains true to this day is um, I do better with movement. And I knew that from a very young age. That's how I got out of school and I was more into sports. And I was like, I, my spirit, my mind work better with movement. That was a learning that's still true for me these days. I'm curious what's true for you. Same. I mean, um, my relationship, my joy of being in my body, my relationship with my body. Um, you know, in some ways, I had a therapist once who said, um, I was talking about how, how, despite my mother being very present and practically supportive, there was some if you're familiar with the mother wound um, Mm -hmm. in object relations, it's sometimes also known as a basic, basic fault of like, it's almost somatically, I often think of it like a false floor, like, like there's this feeling of falling. Mm. And I think, you know, my mother definitely felt a lack of um, attunement and, and affection and physical presence from her own mother. Mm-hmm. And while I think she wanted to provide something very different for me in her own nervous system, mm-hmm. there remained some tentativeness, some, some inability to hold me in the way that she wanted to be held. Right. And, um, and I think I had this therapist once who said, you know, I, I said, I feel like I'm too big for my mother. Like I'm too, I feel for a long time, I felt like my presence scared her. Hmm. And he said, you know, sometimes mothers and babies temperaments are, are, are not matched with such symmetry. Mm-hmm. And that was so helpful for me because I kind of there was that was a moment of of a turn for me of like, oh, mm-hmm. every turn I've had of around and this kind of intersects into some of the unlearning I've had to do, but mm-hmm. like 
um, any turn I've had from, I think what stands out to me as the biggest unlearning I've had to do is that of being too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This feeling that you're too much. Yeah. yeah. And that's an embodied experience and it's a relational experience. We learn, uh, you know, we learn that we're too much because there's some failure. And when I say failure, I don't mean that it's intentional. There's some inability to be met with enough presence that allows us to feel held, to feel that our presence is not not overwhelming, Mm -hmm. but someone else has enough um, expansiveness in themselves to include the expansiveness of someone else in it. Right. And so I say all that to say, yes, movement, my love of my body has been, you know, has stayed with me for, and, and I think about, you know, times, memories of dancing with my mother when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. it was actually dancing with her, having these impromptu dance parties was, was actually the only time where I felt like I can be as big as I want and she's here with me and celebrating my bigness and actually moving into more of her bigness and her aliveness. Yeah. It's like you, the, the quote you mentioned before about Eckhart Tolle, whom I love, he, you know, that, that, you know, your soul goes through experiences in the human form that will help, you know, I forget the words you use, but that they're, designed for you to evolve into what you're supposed to be and experience that sort of speaks to, well, it's a beautiful image again of you coming into your body. And I'm actually just so grateful you've had this experience in good relationship with your body because so many people do not. And that's obviously the work of, you know, um, yoga and somatic therapists and many other, uh, practitioners to help bring that out, that safety out. But, you know, it, it speaks to so many avenues. One of the things that came up for me was this idea of generational trauma, you know, that, that your mom, was giving you everything that she knew how in the capacity she knew how and that she didn't get certain things from her mom too. And I guess the question I have for you is obviously the work you do is rooted in compassion as a, as a therapist. Do you feel, and did you feel compassion for your mom as you were sensing this tug and pull between the dynamic of your bigness and, and her time here? Now I can. Yeah. Uh, for a long time, I just had a tremendous amount of rage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Conf- rage, rage, confusion. Um, but as I've done so much, continue to do so much self work. Yeah, I've gotten, there's some quote that's like, um, liberation, freedom is knowing, freedom is identifying what you didn't get and who stopped you from getting it and then knowing that you can go get it somewhere else. Yeah. And I have had so much repair with so many people Mm -hmm. and continue to do so that 
um, I don't have, I had all I, all I have, I feel very like I can be in my most mature feeling of myself with my mom now of, I, you know, Ani DeFranco has this beautiful song about I'm not angry anymore, which is about, I think Mm -hmm. some of her own movement through her, um, her, her own rage towards her family and this place of acceptance. And I do feel that now is just all that's there is love with my mom. Mm. I love that. And I'm happy to hear that. Um, I'm, I'm curious as you move, as we move through your timeline in life, um, and you know, where did you start to think I shall be a therapist and I shall focus in on relationships and in this dynamic? I mean, it seems like so much of your, your evolution and becoming is definitely movement oriented and performance oriented, expression oriented. It's not super shocking, but I'm just curious what, if there was a turning point or a time where you decided I will spend my time here. Yeah. So my, my mom was actually a, a therapist for a period of my life at one point. And I think, you know, I think finding theater, so, so much of this, like a initial feeling of loneliness and feeling of being lost. It's like, Oh God, there's, there's this whole world where there's, I can, learn about who people are through inhabiting characters and Mm -hmm. through living these different stories. There's expediated deep intimacy that comes from working with, um, you know, working, working in a production of all of the, the play and the touching and the, um, experimentation that goes on. Um, And so that theater is inherently, I think my love of theater originated out of a psychological impulse. And in, you know, in the wings was always this, what would it be like to be a therapist? I think most actors, when they're pulled about what professions they would do is either archeology span or therapist. That's so interesting, why archeology? span (laughs) Well, I think, it's reconstruction, right? Which is a kind of a similar process to making a play, but there's so much imaginative world building one does in right. the process of discovering archives. Um, so then really when I, when I started teach, so my focus um, in when I was teaching theater was um, voice work. And it's Kristen Linklater's voice work, which is freeing the natural voice. It's all about um, freeing the body from extraneous tension to provide maximum freedom for self-expression. Mm-hmm. So it's really working with the body as an instrument mm-hmm. to to notice how contraction happens and to move towards you know, expansiveness, freedom of tension. And it's very psychological. Kristen Mm -hmm. developed her work in the 60s and 70s, like in New York with like Feldenkrais and Alexander Technique and Gestalt Therapist. And it's like her her work, her body of work, she just passed away last year, um, is such an expression of this real, this kind of synergy of, of somatic and psychological work. 
And as I started as I started directing and really teaching actors both voice and physical theater, what I started observing is drama, this trauma, psychological processes of, um, you know, the body keeps the score. And so we'd be working on either uh, a, a somatic exercise or working on a piece of text and suddenly all of this activation is happening and all of this flooding of experiences and in time, time after time, what I began to feel is, ugh, I don't want this application of this being for a play. I just want to be with the process. Yeah. And that's the kind of turn that then led me to gestalt, ther to gestalt therapy and becoming a psychoanalyst. Hmm. What is it? What is it that you love most about what you do now? <sighs> That's such a rich question. I think that I feel at home in my work. Hmm. That I feel for so long working in different institutions in different roles, I had to like mm -hmm. bury or bracket or kind of bound, bind and gag different parts of myself mm -hmm. in order to stay in this lane of what was expected to not be threatening, to keep the status quo. Mm. You're I love you shaking your head mm. right now, saying no to all that. <laughs> that feels really good. <laughs> oh my God. It's, it's like we and, wonder why therapy is needed. And like, that's why, because of systems that make us be contort ourselves and remain quiet and repress and the corporate nod. And my goodness, it's, it's a miracle. I think sometimes that everyone's even functional. That's what I think sometimes, <laughs> but there's lots of reasons for that too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and in, in, in the work I do now, I am fully myself. I, all of the parts of myself that I mean, that I get, to, I, and all these kind of other identities that I've picked up along the way, like I get to, I get to teach still, which I love so much. Mm -hmm. I get to coach and support young clinician, emerging clinicians, I get to do Canva collages and, and, yeah, yeah. and, and put out into the world psycho education. Um, I get to make my own schedule, I get to do my own therapy every time I'm with someone, mm -hmm. because all of my clients teach me so much about my own becoming. Right. It sounds like you're in your genius zone you know, the, which is a, a term that Gay Hendricks uses quite often. And for those listening, it's sort of the sweet spot of what you do so well, no one else could do it. And it fills the need of the world around you. Um, and it, you love it so much, you would almost yes. do it for free. You know, it's, it's that kind of calling. It's like a vocation. Hmm. I yeah. wanted to give you a reflection and see if it lands with you. Um, it's something that I see in a number of people who, have a, a spirit and a mind as brilliant as yours, that is as, as attuned as yours to, to your surroundings, but also your body is that you're 
career path or your trajectory of growth and, and education. And that really mirrors your own, it seems to mirror your own need for your own development. So the thing that you need the most personally to learn, you go out and you master and you teach and you give it back to the world. And I generally think those are the richest careers. They're not necessarily linear. They're a little gnarly sometimes, but they, they tend to yield some of the greatest reward for those around you too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have some questions around somatic therapy and the nervous system. It's something I'm studying a lot lately. Um, have you heard or read the book called the wild by Kimberly Johnson? No, it's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. She's actually, her podcast episode comes out next week for me, which would be for the listeners sometime in uh, late October, November. Um, but so she's a somatic experience practitioner and background in yoga. And she's a friend of mine. I actually met her here in Brooklyn. We were doing a sauna experience together. We were doing a fire and ice. So before the pandemic, I spent about like every Friday of my, my week doing something called happy hour, but it wasn't traditional happy hour. We would gather with water and like electrolytes and we would sit in a, a mobile barrel sauna and actually in Ditmas Park. Um, we had a friend who had a driveway, my friend Lindsay Ashman, who's a yoga teacher in Brooklyn. She rented a, or bought rather a yoga, I'm sorry, a, um, a sauna barrel and it fit about 10 of us. And we would sit there, get super hot, work on breath work. And then we would go jump in a bucket of ice that we had right in the driveway. And we would sit there for like two, three minutes and working on, you know, nasal breathing and breath work and really just regulating the nervous system. And so I met Kimberly there in the, in the sauna and everyone's kind of talking about what they do for a living. And she'd already written a few books. And so, but it's just really interesting to be in a sauna, to be in a space with people and not know their expertise, their genius, their life's journey. And everyone's just like saying random things. And meanwhile, you have like a somatic practitioner who's written books next to you. And like, everyone's like, anyway, it's just, we had these moments where we kind of like, we would smile at each other after we would every Friday we would meet new people and everyone would just start sharing their life journey. Anywho, somatic practicing is, is important. I've taken a couple courses from her, has read her book. Um, I'm also looking into the, the course that, uh, some of the ones that you've sent around, um, somatic, what's it called? The Institute, the somatic Institute. Somatic experiencing. Peter, Peter oh. Levine. Yeah. Yes. So I'm just super curious about the nervous system. Um, you know, my background is in nutrition. So I was a nutritionist for about 10 years, nine or 10 years. And so I understood, you know, um, anatomy, physiology and function as it related to food and to breath and to mindfulness. But as I move more away from that into to different landscapes, I'm really just so curious about the nervous system and how that relates to trauma, to, to sex, to relationships. Um, that's a big question. I'll be more targeted here. I just would love to know how you evaluate or when you work with people or observe them, how you sort of, do you, do you think of their nervous system by their reactivity, by their words, their behaviors? Do you think about sort of like supporting them or going in that way by thinking about the health of their nervous system, whether they're regulated or whether they need to express more, what role does the nervous system play in your work? First of all, that, if that sauna happy hour gets up and running again, I would <laughs> love an invitation. That sounds yes. so magical. You're totally invited. <laughs> um, yes. I mean, I, you know, it's so interesting, I guess, 
I have always, you're helping me see this more through our, our dialogue together. I think I've always seen the world through, through the body. Yeah. And, and I, so I was primed and I think that's kind of why Gestalt felt like such a fit for me is the language, the way of observing was already so consistent with how I worked as a, as a physical theater and voice teacher with actors. So that, that was like, oh yeah, I'm already doing this. I already have this language. And so I see, I, I, I'm always, that's how I'm experiencing other people. I mean, I feel like all language arises as experience from the body. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I think in response to your question, first and foremost, what I'm, when I'm meeting, when I'm working with someone, I'm just starting to help them develop a somatic language. So many people for very good reasons and for just because of our world for good have, have not developed a relationship with their body, have Mm -hmm. had to leave their body. It hasn't Mm -hmm. been safe to be in their body Mm -hmm. Um, or just haven't been in spaces or in relationship where someone values experience that is beyond words. And so I think first and foremost, that's just how I orient is as a somatic therapist is just being with noticing, Mm -hmm. observing, giving, I saw, I like, I saw sadness came into your eyes or Mm -hmm. you looked up there. Mm -hmm. Um, really starting to support someone to even be able to notice that Mm. that they have a body and that their body knows things that they don't Mm. maybe know and also being in relational language with my own body so like like it really touched me that you just said that oh i'm i'm you know i'm noticing Mm some fluttering in my chest, you know, being able to be aware of my own somatic experience to also allow that to be part of the conversation. Um, touch is our first language and mm-hmm. we, and t- touch is language of the body and whether we're actually being physically touched or we're using the language of experience to talk about what's happening in our body. We, we have to return there because that's, that's the primary foundation of relationship mm. with ourselves and with other people. Yeah. And so, and the nervous system and what I have, I mean, I feel like I'm just, I mean, this is the beauty of, of, of mastery, right? I feel like I feel every, like I feel every week, sometimes over the course of the day, I'm like, I know nothing. I know nothing. Mm-hmm. I am mm-hmm. at the beginning of this journey. Yep. Um, it's, and that's another thing I love about this work is it's, I feel, I feel like this 
totally, it can be so frustrating and challenging. And it's also yeah. so awe-inspiring of like, oh my God, there are so many, there's so much to learn. And there's so yeah. many people that are so, um, such incredible teachers. So yes, what I've learned about that, I mean, here's another thing is that in my earliest ther therapy experiences of therapy, none of my therapists were working with my body. They weren't talk. No, I know. <laughs> it makes me so furious. <laughs> like it's maddening, you know? Yeah. I think, you know, I, my, my love of somatic experiencing is like, oh my God, it's so, it's so brilliant. I don't, I actually think this should be the ground for Mm -hmm. ground and a requirement for all therapists. Mm -hmm. um, and then other modalities absolutely grow out of this and can connect. But if we're not working with, we're not working with somatically, then we're not, then we're really not working. No, we're, what, you know, what's interesting, Jordan, that I've started to realize, and this is through the work of Gay and Catherine Hendricks, I've taken some courses from them and some of their sort of students have gone on to create different courses that I've been studying for like three or four years now. And I just think we have such a heady, a verbal and cognitive world and, and way of interacting with each other. And what I, to your point of, if we don't start with the body or come into the body, you know, we're not going to be doing the work. And what I feel and what I actually hear and see is that we just get the same drama with different characters. We just have repeated drama patterns. And it's like, you can blame your boss, you go to a new job, same issue, new boss. New, and it's like, until we understand how to embody this physical miracle that we have, that we've been more or less disassociated from for some time and develop a language, a fluency and a confidence with it, we will continue to more likely have the same drama patterns. And I, I don't know, I, I see it in my own life. I see it in other people and it comes up. Yeah. From yeah. So, you know, here, I'll take you through some of my Please. props yeah. along the way. We've got sure. a, we've yes. Got I a, saw this on Instagram. Vulva, a penis. Um, <laughs> but, uh, let's see. So I love it. This is, you know, one of the things I do with early on with most of my clients is this is a Hoberman spear, cool. sphere, mm -hmm. and um, I use this to, to teach the nerve about the nervous system. Mm -hmm. So our nervous systems move into sympathetic response, and then they also and then into parasympathetic states. Mm -hmm. And in a healthy nervous system, I mean, look, all, all we move through, you can also think about these are ego states as well. We have patterned ways of being that were created, formed in our earliest relationships. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're patterns, like really essential patterns that helped us survive. Like, can you call and, them blueprints, like blueprints that we had to use in order to, or, or no? Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, states, states is really how I yeah. think about them because mm -hmm. ego states are, they're physiological states that have, you know, specific, specific somatic sensations, nervous system responses, 
also um, uh, thought, cognitive patterning, stories, beliefs that happen in states of, of alert. Um, and so, and in states of, in parasympathetic states as well. And so a healthy nervous system is contextually responsive, right? Oh, I have a deadline. Oh, I gotta make the, I gotta mm -hmm. get this bus. Um, oh, net, Netflix and chill. <laughs> <laughs> I love the word language you use, contextually responsive. I think that a lot of people have been taught through some of the different therapies like meditation and even some forms of yoga. I don't necessarily mean yours or that way, but that, that maybe a spiritual path or a, a stable person is, is they're not expressive, but a really good nervous system is expressive. Like they're really expressive and they say the thing and they express the thing. And it's generally, if they do it well, like a short burst and they can process and move on. But I think there's a lot of entry points into a spiritual evolution or phys physical or an emotional evolution. And we often start with modalities, which is, it's neither bad nor good, but we start with modalities that don't necessarily honor expression, which is just interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, like, so if someone says, I want to change my mental health, I'm going to start to, to do a diet and it's a, it's a repressive diet. Or someone says, I have intrusive thoughts. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to, you know, just pretend that they don't exist and observe them or whatever. And it actually, it's not engaging. It's not interactive. And I think that's why I love the work that you do and Kimberly does. Cause it, it's, um, it's, it's foundational to working with it versus avoiding it, you know? Yeah. And sympathetic activation can feel great. I mean, that's what happens when we're on stage performing or having yep. sex, like, right. you know, and, and also even, even when I'm working through some of my own unresolved trauma in my own therapy, a little titrated sympathetic activation is both necessary to process trauma mm -hmm. and it's also my aliveness it's like mm -hmm. it's my being it's a little bit of that flooding a little bit of sadness a little bit of rage is like puts me in touch with my vitality right. and it's about just you know ultimately it's about choicefulness and it's about awareness mm -hmm. we many of the kind of state ego states that we had installed early mm -hmm. in our lives they'll never they'll you know i think of marge do you know marge piercy the poet mm -mm. i love i love her poetry talk about it's so visceral i mean talk about somatic it's so visceral her work um but she has this wonderful line about how human beings don't move in like ebbing circles that water makes on a rock. And that's how I think about any of our patterning and e any ego states is like, we don't, they don't ch change, they don't disappear. But with our continued meeting them and knowing of them, they soften. Mm -hmm. They, they take, they turn, they get less, they have, there's less activation, but mm -hmm. we have, we have, must encounter these parts of ourselves for them to change. And we must encounter them with someone else Thank because you. we are wounded in relationship and we heal in relationship. 
I would like you to talk about that a little bit. That's a very important thing. Um, I think there's been a lot of narratives floating around. I don't know who started them, but (laughs) of all the narratives, but like that we, you know, you're in a relationship and you end the relationship or it ends and you have to heal alone and be alone and like learn how to be independent and be by yourself. And that was something I, I subscribed to. I was married and divorced about five years ago and I kind of martyred. Hey, I'm a divorcee too. Yeah. Remarried, but yeah. Yes. I'm hopefully on the path to remarriage at some point. But um I don't know. I think there's like a big narrative of like doing it alone and it's not healthy to to be with someone right away or very soon. And I, I actually reject that a lot. And I just I really believe what you said around healing in relationship to one another. So I'd love you to talk about breaking relational patterns um in relationship to a new person and how we can do that consciously and, and healthy. Yeah, let's 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 <laughs> annihilate the myth of aloneness as necessary for self-growth. We must we need each other. We need each other to heal. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, the way let me see how to talk about um you know I think some of this narrative is like, I have to go fix myself before I can be in a relationship, Mm -hmm. but actually you can't look, I don't even like the the term fix because it kind of um, implies that something's broken, but like, how can you work on heal from or evolve in the patterns of relationship without being in relationship? Like you're going to show, you're the mirror. You're going to show me where I get stuck, where I get afraid, where I enter into an immature ego state. You're going to show me that. How am I going to figure that out by myself? I'm not going to know where the opportunities for my growth are. Yeah. So we have to, I think, mature relation mature relating is knowing that we're going to partner and it's going to be hard. And this person is going to reveal to us all of our wounds. They're going to touch on these raw spots again and again. And the commitment is to bring conscious relating to these wounded parts to help our partners know how they touch us, these spots, Mm -hmm. offer us repair when they can and have the wisdom to know the difference Mm -hmm. because our partners are not our, our retroactive parents. That's more the role of a therapist than a partner. And the more sensitivity and awareness our partner has about how we were wounded in our primary, not just our primary relationships, this wounding happens in, in prior in you know, adult relationships as well. Mm-hmm. But if the more sensitivity our partner knows about, oh, I get really activated when you touch on this. And when activation happens, this is my reactive patterning and what scares me about this and the story that I tell myself about this. Sure. Um, and, uh, what I'm 
what I'm most needing from you in that moment or how you can help me, how you can help notice, help me notice that I'm in a reactive state and bring some co-regulation to help mm. me move into a more mature state. Mm. Um, co-regulation. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But that's, that's how we heal is we, I think, you know, it's extraordinary to me that we are kind of the best thing we get to do on this planet is be in relationship. And mm -hmm. it's the only thing we aren't taught how to do. That's like, why, why do we in school, we're not taught how to be in relationship. Mm. Like what an exquisite learning right. that would be. Right. If you had to teach, if you could add three classes to universal grammar school education, what would they be? Um, embodiment. Relationship. Um, and I would say environmental relationship, mm -hmm. everything's relationship, maybe the umbrella, it would just be a, re a relationship school mm -hmm. and you would learn embodiment, human and, and the natural world. Sign me up. Can I send my kids to your school? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that you said the greatest thing we do on this planet is to be in relationship. And it's the one thing we're not taught. I think that is, you know, when I think a lot about um, what breaks my heart, which there are many things, um, that's one of the things that breaks my heart is that I see so much human suffering and discord that I've experienced. Maybe I've, I've even perpetuated too, right? Like, through not knowing how to communicate, not knowing what I need, not knowing my body and how to stand up for my body. And I think about, you know, I'm not opposed to suffering. I think it's pretty important for development of the soul and resilience, but there's just a lot of unnecessary suffering that we all, you know, we go through it and we take what we need from it. Um, and thankfully there's people like you and others in the world who are teaching us how to transform it. But damn it, communication breaks my heart. <laughs> that People don't know how to communicate with themselves and others. Um, so I love the work that you're doing. I feel like we could talk a lot. I might have you on as another, um, another episode to talk a little bit more about sex and the nervous system. I think that's a huge thing, um, which I'd love to. Uh, but I, I have two more questions for you. Um, my, my first question is, what are you actively unlearning? You did allude to it earlier in the podcast, but I'm just curious if anything comes up as you think about what you're actively and unlearning doesn't mean a whole 360. It just means that you're marinating on it. You're reorienting yourself to it. Um, something you're working with. Hmm. I think What I'm unlearning is that um, I'm, I'm, how do I want to phrase this? What I'm unlearning is that I, 
I have to stay small. Hmm. That staying small, taking up less space, having fewer needs, feeling less. Mm-hmm. I'm like even shrinking as I'm just saying this. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a lie. Mm-hmm. And I can take up as much space as I want. Some people won't like it. And I can be sent, I can be open to, to learning about that, to being with that, but that that's, but that I don't have to change because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's an, enough room for everybody to be mm-hmm. expansive. Mm-hmm. And wouldn't that be a beautiful world if we all felt entitled to take up as much space as we wanted and felt celebrated by each other for for being expansive. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's probably this is I'm sure what I'm saying as an unlearning is not is probably universe is one that many people can mm-hmm. identify with. Mm-hmm. I I feel like this is a deeply social and biological phenomenon, right? I think um, it's a psych. It's certainly a psychological narrative, mm-hmm. but but it's rooted in the body. Mm-hmm. There's some there's something biological about if you take if you take up space, if you get what you want, will there be enough for me? Yeah. Yeah. Um. And then I think that kind of maybe kind of share universal social biological phenomenon then gets deepened in our in our different cultural family systems of mm-hmm. um, a parent who took up a lot of space or someone who feels like they can't right and then these get this gets played out relationally and socially um, but I it's a lesson it's a painful lesson it's a really painful lesson that being being someone who, you know, I had two parents who didn't really know how to pay attention to me. I think that had something to do with how I learned to be in the world of like, yeah. yep. uh, I gotta be a little flashier. I gotta be a little louder. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also just temperament. It's who I am. Mm-hmm. And so my environment shaped some of that. So maybe some of that's I came into the world with, but it's who I am authentically and I love it. And it's also been painful for me, many instances in my life where I've been really isolated and sometimes I would say kind of persecuted for taking up space. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. And I agree that it would be a beautiful world if everyone could take up the space that they need in the, in the way and the shape that they need to. Um, when I, you know, say the word unlearning, um, without it being a verbal definition, it can be that, but what comes up for you in your mind and body when you hear the word unlearning? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's such a beautiful question. Like, 
I just feel ease. Mm-hmm. Like I'm just you even asking that question, I just felt my back expand and I'm more aware of the space I'm in. More expansion. It's a beautiful way to view it and to feel it. Mm. Um, Thank you, Jordan. I'd love for you to tell the audience a little bit about where they can find you and your work. Mm. So I have a website where you can read more about who I am and see what what services I provide. couples therapy, individual therapy. I also do case consultation with other therapists and teach. And um, and also on Instagram, which is my my favorite little cozy community <laughs> of um, where I where I really love sharing I really love sharing psychoeducation and mainly relation, a lot of relationship education because I really feel like I want to give to people what I wish I'd had when mm-hmm. I didn't have it. Yeah. And so um, that's where I can be found. Yes. And I'm happy I found you there too. And I'm happy you responded to my message. Some people don't respond, you know, in the world there. Um, but you responded. So it was meant to be. And I look forward to um, maybe a part two on the nervous system and sexuality and more in relationship dynamics. Responsiveness is one of my core values. So Mm, I'm glad you felt it. I like that. Thank you so much for this time. I feel really um, grateful to be, have your really sensitive and thoughtful exploration of me. Thank you. Hey friends, thanks for listening to the School of Unlearning podcast. You can follow us on Spotify and iTunes. Be sure to check out the show notes, complete with links and insight you won't want to miss. If you enjoyed this episode, take one minute to rate, review, and share this podcast because our learning and unlearning never ends and we don't have to do it alone.